everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome back to another episode of First Time Outdoors. We have a, a friend on the phone today, John Lindquist, who is uh, um, joining us today. And uh, John works for the Midway USA Foundation. I'll let him explain more about that. Um, but as an introduction to John, um, he and I met back when uh, we both worked at uh, an organization called Pheasants Forever. And uh, I got to do some uh, outings with him and some shooting sports activities, and we got to know each other. And uh, he since has moved on, and I think it would be really interesting to have him share some of his experiences, what his job is, uh, maybe for those people that are interested in getting into the outdoors in a different way. So thanks for being here, John. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate your time. Yeah, we as we appreciate yeah, you being here as well. Um, so the first question that we have, which is uh, one that we typically ask a lot of people that we interact with when we're hunting or we're fishing or whatever, is who who is it that inspired you to get into the outdoors uh, or got you introduced or who was your mentor would be another way of phrasing that. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, you kind of take for granted – as you're growing up, the people that are around you and the role that they play in your life. But I was actually um, in a in an environment where I probably wouldn't have had a chance to hunt. I, our family fished a lot. We spent a lot of time together. We camped and all those kind of things. But I had lost a brother early on to um, a gun accident. He, he was cleaning a 22 rifle and it went off accidentally. And um, that was kind of when I was real little, so I don't remember a ton about it, but I remember a little bit. But my dad was also in World War II, so he had seen some things that probably weren't a lot of fun. And um, long story short, we moved to uh, a new community, and our neighbor um, had a son my age, and we were hanging out a lot, and we got along great. Um, and his dad owned a farm in southern Iowa. And at that time, pheasant populations were just exploding in the south. Um, deer were tougher, but, man, there was a lot of pheasants. I mean, you could get a limit of pheasants in 20 minutes. Hmm. Uh, they were just everywhere. It was like chickens, you know, on the yeah. landscape. And um, Dad told me if I took hunter safety, uh, you know, I could, I could go hunt, and he'd go with me. So long story short, we had a teacher in school who had started a group called Hawkeyes, and Hawkeyes is where you went to get hunter's education. Mm. And the unique thing about that was at the time, hunter education was taught in school. So we would meet on Wednesdays and uh, we'd, we'd reload shotgun shells and tie flies, learn about fly fishing or camping or doing all kinds of different outdoor skills from canoeing to shooting shotguns, you know. Um, we shot air rifles in the art room in the winter when it was cold. <laughs> and, uh, just did a lot of really cool stuff. Was this during and school or after school program? This was, uh, it, it was right to tail into school. So okay. you went right from your locker right to the deal, like a extracurricular activity kind of thing. Mm. And uh, the, the ironic part about that group was um, the attendance was huge. I mean, he kind of started the group to get the tweeners, you know, the kids who weren't athletic or they weren't necessarily in band or whatever but kids who wanted to do something but they really didn't know what it was you know yeah um and teaching us hunter's ed and uh, gun safety on the front end was it was like a eye-opening experience for me it really changed my life you know um he put me in charge of the guns and storing them and cleaning them and making sure they were cased for a trip to the range and all that kind of stuff and I, all at once, I kind of had a sense of purpose, you know. Um, and over the years uh, with my neighbor, um, we continued to, to evolve that relationship, and we hunted a lot of upland, but then that turned into waterfowl and deer and trapping, and it just continually evolved and uh, to the point where he and I both went to Iowa State University, and we roomed together, and, uh, and we continued to hunt and fish and stuff while we were in college, which as you guys know, that's kind of a tough gig. You know, when you're in school, you're you're just not thinking that way, and you're broke, and yeah, uh, do a study, you know. And um, so to have that friend and that rock, you know, living with me really kind of kept me grounded. Um, not to, not to, not to say we didn't get in our fair share of trouble, <laughs> but 
you kind of get what I'm saying. You know, we had we had a good time at college, and um, unfortunately, um, Matt was his name, my roommate. He was going to be uh, a game warden. That's what he was going to school for. Um, he was a fishery and wildlife biology major. He got killed the day after he got his federal park ranger job wow. um, in a motorcycle accident. So, you know, that was kind of the guy that I hung out with heavily. But um, his his dad happened to be my godfather as well. And we just continued that you know, that relationship. And I still hunt with him today. Um, he's 76 years old. And uh, he climbs trees and bow hunts with me and hunts pheasants and uh, just just an incredible individual. Um, and I really owe a lot of what I do today to him and to the other guy that started Hawkeyes. His name was Les Licklatter. And Les had his own television show. It was called Outdoors with Les. <laughs> and uh, it was on every Sunday afternoon. You could watch him do all kinds of outdoor skill stuff. But everybody in Northwest Iowa knew Les Licklatter. He was very, very popular. Um, had a radio show and he also had a TV show, but, um, had I not met those two individuals, I probably wouldn't have got into hunting, um, the, you know, to the extent that I did, um, that, that excitement for hunting evolved into shooting sports. I got, um, a chance to compete, you know, with air rifles and shotguns and, and just loved it at a very young age. Um, and it just pushed me to, kind of think about my life a little bit differently and I looked in the rearview mirror you know when I was kind of getting up into my 40s and was thinking what am I doing to give back to the industry I really love and care about and that's what drove me to Pheasants Forever and uh, ended up working there for about 13 years and uh, focused on shooting sports and some R3 stuff which I'm sure you guys have heard of uh, recruitment retention and reactivation mm -hmm. um working with getting folks in the field and you know it just kind of uh it just kind of fit that niche for me um at the time during that that career change that i met larry and brenda potterfield i had a chance to work with the midway usa foundation got to learn a little bit more about what they were about and that is more so from the shooting sports side than it is the hunting side but you know, we see a lot of overlap, and I can talk about that later, but um, having a chance to meet those people and, and understand how incredible they are and how much they dedicate to, to shooting sports across the country, um, it's hard not to be um, excited to work for folks like that. So when the opportunity arose to, to work for them, um, it was a it was a no-brainer. You know, they're they're in Columbia, Missouri, and I'm in Northwest Iowa. I'm the first regional um, position they've ever hired for the foundation. But it's it's a wonderful, wonderful group of people that are very dedicated and, and uh, they love shooting sports. And to be a part of that environment, it's really infectious. You know, it really grows on you. So I'm in a great spot right now. But that's kind of my journey. Yeah, one of the things that I took away from that and kind of amazed is that there's quite a ripple effect there. Just, you know, from a small thing with your neighbor to now making, you know, being in a career and working in a position that allows you to make pretty big waves from just that small ripple in the community and to, you know, kind of spread the, the mission and the, the joy and the, the hobby and introduce all sorts of new people. That That's really cool. It's amazing how how much it affects your life. You know, I think um, my last year at PF, we were working with roughly, I want to say it was about 150,000 youth. And when you think about it, you know, 150,000 people that are pulling triggers and either hunting or shooting or involved with our chapters, that is extraordinary. That's a huge number. Yeah. Uh, and you know, had I not had that experience growing up, I never would have been in a position to be a part of that. And Pheasants Forever has, has just been incredible in my life and the life of my family and my friends. And think of how many kids get a chance to experience their first shot with the PF chapter. I mean, yeah. that, you know, you can't put a price on that and the rewards won't be seen for years, but it is truly incredible. Yeah. That's great. 
Um, I want to circle back a little bit, John, if you don't mind, and, and for some of our yeah. listeners, myself included, could you kind of expand on the Midway USA's uh, foundation, what their what your position is with them, what their goals are, uh, sort of the mission behind the foundation, and what your day-to-day looks sure. like? I'd be happy to. So um, the foundation is a relatively young company. Um, a lot of people confuse it with Midway USA, the, the store, you know, the retailer. The Midway USA Foundation is a separate entity altogether. We're not connected at all. The only the only thing that we have that's similar is this, the originator of the foundation and the and the founder of the company is Larry and Brenda Potterfield. That's what we share. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they established the foundation in 2007, and the goal was to change the future of youth shooting sports. They wanted to provide sustainable funding for youth shooting sports teams all across the country. And they didn't want to be discipline-specific. They wanted to include every discipline of shooting. So they provide opportunities for students to make friends and, and develop confidence and learn discipline and leadership skills, just like any other sport. Um, but as you know, in, most schools don't have funding for shooting sports teams. You know, it's... Yeah low on the radar as far as funding goes so they wanted to provide a way for shooting teams to raise money um, and and have financial resources forever in the form of an endowment account that can help them be successful 20 30 40 100 years from now and uh, to date that model has is grown exponentially I think there's um, 3,000 youth shooting teams that work with the foundation today. Um, those teams have roughly $160 million collectively in the accounts. Wow. And every year they get to pull 5% of that balance to help offset their budget. So, you know, it's, it's an amazing model because it took somebody with that vision and those resources to not only create the foundation, but then to turn around and make sure that the funding mechanism was in place that it'll be there long term so um it's amazing you know grant time just rolled around uh, in december and we had you know it was over a thousand teams applied for grants just in the month of december wow (laughs) that's amazing that's staggering i would have had no idea that there there was that sort of appetite out there for youth yeah uh just i'm sort of ignorant to the to that uh, industry and that's that's really cool to hear it is pretty cool. Um, you know, all the investments are handled by Goldman Sachs. Um, they only handle, you know, large investments. I believe that the cutoff is like a hundred million dollars. So when you hear <laughs> Goldman Sachs, you know, it has it has a little bit of uh, clout with it that it's from their success. But you know, they're in a position where they can pick and choose their customers, and to be a part of that investing team is also pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, but. My job with the foundation is I'm a program manager. Um, I focus specifically on the northwest part of the country, uh, and I work with communities, youth shooting teams, you know, including the coaches, parents, and athletes. Um, I work with schools, different state agencies, industry. I work with all those different entities to connect groups that want to start youth shooting sports programs and grow them. And our focus is to help kids find a place where they're comfortable and then provide them resources to, to go out and raise funds to build their endowment accounts that last them forever. So they don't have to worry about, my parents don't make enough money for me to shoot, or I can't afford to go out because I can't buy shells, or whatever the cause is. Mm-hmm. We want to eliminate those barriers, you know, just like your show talks about weekly is, there's a lot of barriers. We're trying to remove those so that they can have a shooting sports experience um, equal to everyone else. And hopefully it shapes them into better citizens and leaders and students and all those other good things. That's fantastic. Yeah. So um, as you know, John, I, I was a high school science teacher for five years. And uh, I think about um, – actually had some students of mine approach me about doing um, t- starting like a trap team for example uh-huh. and uh, 
I could see firsthand that there's just there's quite an appetite out there from students that were high school aged or you know we'll say like the age group of 13 to 16 year olds I saw a lot and heard from a lot of students they knew that I was a hunter and and uh, wanted to know how to get started doing something like this and I actually didn't really know the answer um, I was able to start uh, an archery team through the national archeries in the schools um, program yeah. And, yeah, it's uh, awesome. yeah. It's, I think that's a great stepping stone because, I mean, we'll get to this part later. Um, it was a little easier for me to introduce archery right off the bat than, than seemingly um, firearms. But if, if I had that student approach me now and said, Mike, I really would like to have uh, like a school sanctioned or a club team that's uh, doing trap shooting at the school, how do I do that? What kind of answer could I provide to them? Well, if, if you're looking to start a new team now, it's a whole lot different than it was, you know, 15 years ago. Let's start there. But um, there are shooting disciplines of all types in all communities. And, you know, the foundation works with everything from air pistol and air rifle to muzzleloader to shotguns to rim fire and, and uh, center fire rifle. I mean, there's everything out there. If you have an interest in pursuing that discipline, you, you're, you're in a good space and time right now because all of that is out there for you to enjoy. Um, you know, there's a couple ways to kind of get started. If you're, if you're brand new into it, um, you know, you can work with a local shooting club or talk to the local members of a range to see if anything already exists. And you'd be surprised how many programs are already out there. And if they're doing good things, I mean, join in and enjoy the fun and, and learn the skills and uh, be a part of that. But if they're not, um, I'd say go online and just look at the national groups that already exist. Mm. Uh, there's disciplines, like I said, of all different types. But a lot of them are as simple as FFA shooting sports. Uh, 4-H has shooting sports programs. In Minnesota, where you guys are, um, man, it's, it's the heart of USA High School Clay Target League. They have yeah. hundreds of teams in that state. And the, yeah. the cool thing about that organization is a lot of those teams letter as a varsity sport. Um, so they have state tournaments, they have regional tournaments, and uh, it's, it's a great way to get involved in, in shotgun sports. There's also... Legion shooting sports, you know, the VFWs and those kind of things actually have programs as, as well as civilian marksmanship programs um, and scholastic clay target programs where teams will travel to other schools and compete head to head. So they kind of get that same feeling as a uh, as team playing basketball head to head. You know, you're on the lane with other kids and you're competing. It's not uh, necessarily a virtual league like the high school league is where you post scores. Um, it's slightly different model, slightly different group, but they're all great. And they're all filling a niche and they're all growing exponentially right now. Um, students have an interest in particip participating because what other sport is non-discriminatory? I mean, when you think about it, it's either boys or girls sports, or you have to be athletic, or you have to be a certain build, you know? Um, if you have those kind of things aren't in your favor, you know, if that's part of you like me, you know, I'm not, I'm five, five, you know, I'm not going to be a center in basketball, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but if I put in the time, the energy, and I work on the range with my coaches, I am on a level playing field with everyone else that's there. There is no discrimination that happens on a range. So even if you're in a wheelchair, you can compete. And the cool part is everybody's score counts. So it's not like you're competing specifically for yourself. You're part of a team, but everybody gets to participate. And that's what you don't see necessarily in every other sport. You know, there's kids that aren't quite as gifted as others, and then they end up on the sidelines, and they don't get to um, go out on the field and run the touchdown, you know. But in shooting sports, you have that opportunity, and you can do that. Um, so it's really a great place for kids that are looking for a home. You know, they're looking for a way to be with their friends, to build those skills that transfer over to the classroom um, and improve your grades, you know, and you're part of something bigger. And that's 
I think that's what's so attractive about shooting sports. Yeah, it seems like it's a great opportunity for kids to get involved. Um, I would have to imagine there are certain barriers, um, you know, despite the fact that it's sort of uh, democratic, like anybody can be involved, there's, you know, skill levels can vary. What are some of the challenges that you see and what does the foundation do to uh, address some of those challenges, getting shooting sports on the table and getting participation? Are there cost barriers? Um, Yeah, what are some of the barriers that you face? So, so, um, there are barriers, absolutely. And the Midway USA Foundation is trying to address several of them. Um, and, and, you know, what it boils down to is, you know, sports of any type, whether you're golfing or you're a shooter, equipment costs money, you know, especially equipment that's custom to you, like golf clubs or a shotgun, you know, um, you typically want to have the equipment that, that lends you the best opportunity for success. So there is a cost to ammunition, uniforms, travel, you know, training, um, all those things add up, you know, the clay birds themselves or the shotgun shells, whatever. Um, no different than golf and golf balls and a new set of irons or drivers or bags and, you know, it costs money. Mm-hmm. But last time I checked, there's not a foundation helping, you know, the, the golfers in the state of Minnesota, yeah. but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but anyway, the foundation helps those teams offset those costs. And the other limiting factors are places to shoot, you know, ranges yeah. and, um, and coaches. Um, you know, coaches are really the heroes of shooting sports. Without those people mentoring and dedicating their time to that, uh, that school or that team, you know, none of this happens. Coaches are, I, I always call them the superheroes because they are. Um, and they are the ones that connect those athletes to future opportunities, you know. Um, so we need more funding to, to train coaches and develop coaches and give them better tools. And we need more places for athletes to go shoot um, because a lot of them can't drive, you know, when they're that age, they can't drive a half an hour to a range or whatever it is or an hour. Um, so the foundation is just setting up two um, funds to, to solve those two problems. We're in the midst of raising money to put in those two accounts that local communities can apply for grants and they can help offset the cost of those things through those grants. And uh, unfortunately, they're probably not going to be available for a couple of years. <laughs> I'd love to be able to start processing grants tomorrow, but we're on the very front end of those. And I, I know the goal is is to put you know $20 million in those accounts um, and we're just starting. So um, the idea is to use the, the interest off those accounts like grant money. Um, so, you know, Shakopee needs a new range and they want to expand on an existing range and add skeet fields or whatever. They would be able to apply for grants to the Midway USA Foundation to help develop that process. If they're bringing in new coaches, you know, it costs money to train those guys. Um, and some coaches... You know, when they go to the trainings, they got to stay a couple of nights in the hotel. Um, there, you know, food involved and gas and all the other expenses, plus the fees to take the training. Um, you know, we're trying to help solve that, too, with our coach training fund. So those are those are some big things. Um, as far as kids go locally trying to get involved, um, most of these programs now that are involved with youth shooting sports, have equipment that they can use and, and test and try. A lot of the parents aren't familiar with the shotguns or the rifles. And, you know, when you look at some of that equipment, it, it can be really expensive or it can be very affordable, but they don't know the difference of, this, of the equipment. Mm-hmm. So my, my advice is get involved with those teams. Use their loaner equipment until you understand more about the sport and what you want and then start looking for that product afterwards. So that is really um, something that has happened over time. You know, back early on, that was not the case. The equipment wasn't there, but more and more groups are providing loaner equipment so that kids can get out and learn a little bit more about it. Um, As far as where to go shoot, you know, um, the thing I always tell people is the National Shooting Sports Foundation has an incredible website. And the address is where to shoot.org. And if you go on that website, 
every range in the country pops up and you can check out what they offer and if it's you know pistol shooting or rifle if it's shotgun skeet trap whatever you can go do that and uh trust me most of those ranges ranges are very um receptive to young kids coming out and shooting because they are the future of that range those ranges need those influx of of young shooters at the at the facility so it's good stuff that's great um yeah when you were talking about the loaner equipment that just i mean that's kind of how a lot of outdoor pursuits start right i mean i borrowed mike's camo for the first couple years uh you go borrow a shotgun when i go hunting with them and it's better to uh, borrow or to find loaner stuff or use, um, you know, cheaper equipment, however you want to skin the cat, but just to get involved, that's something we always sort of preach is like, doesn't matter what equipment you have as long as it helps you kind of get the job done. Um, right. It's better to start. Right. I actually bumped into a kid a couple of years ago at Nationals, and I always ask him, what are you shooting? And I hear a lot of um, different brands and gear, but... Um, one of the old standbys was Remington 870s, you know, a pump shotgun that was was kind of the standard for years and years and years. And this kid was competing at nationals with a 31-inch barrel, (laughs) 870, 12-gauge with a fixed choke tube, and uh, it was a full choke, and it was his grandpa's. And I said, that's so cool. What? Why did you bring that? And he goes, because my grandpa died this week, and I wanted to shoot it in his honor. Wow. Well, now here's a kid who is at nationals and he has every right to want to be competitive and really want to uh, put his best foot forward on the range and, and, you know, have the best equipment. And here he's using a gun that's 50 years old or older. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, when you're done, swing back by the booth. I want to know how you did. So he came back and said, you're not going to believe this, but I won today. <laughs> I'm like, what? Because, yeah, I ran 100 straight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And this kid was from Tennessee, you know, and, and I had just thought, that is so cool. He goes, hey, will you come back tomorrow and watch me? And I said, yeah, I'll be here. I'll come over and watch you, you know. And, and I went back over there, and he ran another 100 straight with that 870. That is incredible. And it was just heartwarming, you know. That, yeah. What do you think that gun costs in the day, you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he got in a shoot-off with a bunch of other kids from around the country, and he won the overall so to some degree, it's more about <laughs> your training and your discipline and, uh, you know, the work ethic you put into it than it is the actual gun. Because a gun, although it can be nice to have something a little better, the reality is they all shoot about the same, you know. Um, they all put lead down range, and that's what you're trying to do. And as long as you know where that gun shoots and you have the right form and function, you'll, you'll hit that clay. But uh, it was a great lesson for me just to be around that kid and and uh, hear his story. That's amazing. Yeah, it's about time in the field. More, you know, like you said, time in the field is worth yep. everything. Yep, I agree. Time on the range will make you a better athlete if you just if you're disciplined and you go through the right training. So, do you find that there? You know, obviously, we care about. Uh, the outdoors and hunting and fishing and, and, you know, certainly shooting sports fits into that. But do you see a, is there any correlation that you find between shooting sports uh, athletes and their time in the outdoors? Like, let's say for hunting, is there a correlation between um, trap shooters and hunters? Do, do they lead to one another? You know, um, one of our partners at the foundation is uh, the Scholastic Shooting Sports Foundation, and they actually they they survey their athletes every year, and I can remember a couple of years ago I was looking at their survey, and it said that seventy two percent of their athletes have either hunted or want to hunt small game. Mm-hmm. So seventy two percent of those kids that are out there pulling triggers for their programs and their disciplines um, had that desire. And I thought that was really incredible. The thing that concerned me was how do we get them headed down that path? Because, you know, connecting them to the outdoors is the next big step. And I think there's programs out there. I know Pheasants Forever had youth mentor hunts and Mm -hmm. those things. 
if you can connect them to those local volunteers for those chapters that will take them on a hunt and connect them with other people that have the same desire, um, a lot of good things can happen. But if you're in the city, you know, which you guys are up in the cities, you really need somebody to take you on those first experiences. And I think um, a lot of those coaches have had the opportunity to shoot different sports, including hunting. And I'm, I'm not so sure they wouldn't help you find a place in the outdoors as well. You know, they would find other people that hunt or, you know, whether you want to hunt deer or pheasants or grouse in the North woods. I, I think there's people that um, are right around you that you just don't realize that have those connections. Yeah. So, I think I'm just that's, asking. that's absolutely fascinating that you say that, that, I mean, that the more I think about that number, it's just, uh, that gap is obviously the million dollar question. I mean, clearly, um, 72% of students aren't wanting to go small game hunting. Um, but that, of that population, I mean, they, they've got the equipment, they've got the tools and they've got the skills to, you know, to hit play like they do. They, you know, they clearly could be successful in the field. Um, so establishing that, you know, what's the causation, whether it's mentorship, um, do you, do you think it's a problem of optics with hunters? I mean, for myself, uh, you know, it was largely ignorance, uh, as to, cause I didn't know any hunters. So I didn't, the only perception I got of hunting was through the media, um, or, you know, movies and TV and whatnot growing up. And once I started to understand like what hunting actually meant to people and I knew people that did hunt it, that slowly started to change. And that was ultimately, I think the reason that I wanted to, to jump into it was because I, I recognized that that was kind of a, I was, I was misguided my whole life basically about, uh, what it meant to be a hunter and what hunters value. And I, I, just when looking at kids like that, again, when they have the skills and the equipment and the access to it, you know, I wonder what could be the barrier there. Well, I think part of it is um, there's some generational gaps going on, and that's why there's kind of a decline in the people that are taking to the field and hunting. You know, my I can remember growing up um, being around other hunters who were disappointed when they pulled up to a like a parking spot at a public hunting area, and there were other vehicles there. They were like, oh, man, somebody else is already here. And they weren't being inclusive. You know, they were trying to be exclusive. Yeah. So as you grow up, you know, I'm talking more towards the baby boomer side than your guys' side. But when, when I was growing up, um, you know, we were always trying to find that place where we were alone and there was no one else. And um, I don't know that that's really encouraging to people to give it a try when they hear you talking that way in small groups, you know. Um and it, it rubs off. I think it's kind of contagious when you're not welcoming and you're not wanting other folks to be there. My son's generation, and Matt's a millennial, um, you know, they want to do everything together. Their, their, their social network is their thing. That's what trips their trigger. If, if they had to go hunt alone, I don't know if they'd want to do it. Um, <laughs> but if they can do it with their friends, uh, they're all about it. And, I, that's what I see with Matt. My, you know, he, I hunt with him a couple of times a year. Unfortunately, you know, he doesn't hunt with me a lot anymore. He started a family and he's kind of busy with work and children and that kind of thing. But what I see now when I, when I ask him to go hunting, he's like, well, who else is going? You know, and he wants to take friends, his college roommates. Um, he wants my godfather to be there. You know, the guy, the 76 year old guy that climbs mm-hmm. trees yet. You know, that guy. Yep. Um, it's all about that social interaction and the after the hunt camaraderie and the, and the meal and, you know, all those kind of things play into it. Um, and it's ironic because when I was his age, man, I just wanted to hunt and that was my focus. And I was all about the pursuit and, uh, you know, over time <laughs> you mellow with age and it becomes a lot less important, you know? Now, now I just want to be with my friends and, and uh, enjoy the experience together. And I think that's where he's starting, which is encouraging to me that maybe maybe we are starting to turn the corner on folks going out and hunting. Yeah, I think that's well said. When Jake and I were 
trying to come up with a kind of what our idea was for this podcast and the the mission behind First Time Outdoors. One of the things that we had talked about was really what you just said is that we're seeing such a decrease and a decline of the younger generations kind of feeding into the the hunting um, arena. I mean, those like the baby boomers, like you say, are like kind of retiring from that hobby a little bit. And there isn't yeah. a lot of backfill there. there. Isn't a whole lot of like people coming in behind them. No. And we had one of the things that I think Jake used the term gatekeepers. You know, they they have like control of the gate and and who like what kind of information they want to give out and they kind of keeping stuff to themselves and that's that's very different from what we've experienced as hunters. I mean, we're a younger generation. We're both 30 years old. And to us hunting is that very social thing and and uh it's it's cool to hear that that shooting sports kind of sets that tone early, you know that it, you can be a does. part of something and and that uh, guns don't have to be scary, and right. you can enjoy all these hobbies with people and you know ha- have family bonding. Your you know, mom and dad are there, grandpa and grandma are coming to watch, and have reasons to get together, which you know are really important these days. It, it is. And, you know, my generation, it seemed like if you wanted to build like a lifelong bond with someone else or, or a really great relationship with someone else, um, you went hunting or fishing. You know, it was something that you did together that you just built um, your relationship around, you know. And it was unlike your work relationships with other people or you know, distant friend kind of relationships, even in your school buddies. It was unlike that. It when you went in the field with someone else to chase roosters or whatever it was, it was um, it was special. You know, it was really something that dug into your soul and changed your heart. You know, and you shared that bond with that person. And going forward, man, it 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 was big. Um, you know, I was sitting in the tree stand with my son when he shot his first deer with a bow, and you know, I don't think uh, I think Matt was twelve or thirteen years old. He was little. Um, but that for me was one of the best moments of my life, you know, watching him and his excitement and his fulfillment over that. And then being able to enjoy that harvest and, you know, get it on the table and eat it and make it part of our, our family, you know, um, dinner table, that was big. Um, and it really connected with him and that's, you know, why he continued to enjoy getting outdoors and and pursuing animals. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, you know, she likes to shoot. Um, she likes to go hunting if she can run the dog, if that's her, if she can, if she can train the dog, work with the dog, she's all about that. Um, as far as, you know, harvesting animals or, or hunting that way, it's not real high on her priority list, you know, but she likes to shoot. Um, and you know, she can, uh, enjoy it from a different angle than me and that's okay (laughs) i'm all right with that there's room for all of that and i think that that's as mike said earlier about the gatekeepers like if i think too often there's this perception of if you're not all the way in then why don't you just stay home and it's like right if she wants to go run with the dog uh and watch the dog work i mean that's amazing that's that's a lot of people love that um yeah if you want to go fish and you want to catch and release you don't have to keep them You, you know there's just room for everything everything out there and i think that's our mission and i think people can just get better at um accepting other people's desires and interests wherever they might be to get outside because i think there's a lot of uh there's a lot of value in it and a lot of in a lot of ways these days in 2020 now that we're in 2020 uh there's a lot of people on spending their time on social media and being on the internet all the time and, and and not getting outdoors and there's just so much value out there um and I think along those lines, I wanted to bring up something that hopefully maybe you can shed a little bit of light on. I'm not sure. Uh, but in our sort of research in shooting sports, um, we found out that the Pittman-Robertson Act uh, is like drastically, um, well, what's the right way to phrase it? Basically that the shooting sports and uh, people that go to ranges and, and sort of recreationally shoot uh, have a major impact on the Pittman-Robertson Act, which uh, for some of our listeners, if they don't know, I think we've discussed it before, but 
Um, basically, it's a, I think it's a 13% excise tax on uh, guns, ammunition, and, and hunting-related uh, equipment. Yep. Yep. That's, that, that money is earmarked for conservation and access, and uh, it's basically just given right back to, to the outdoors. Um, so I found that was an interesting thing, that a, a community that's not necessarily hunting or directly participating in things like access issues is such a major contributor to those funds. Right. Somebody like me that maybe in the fall shoots two or three boxes of shells at ducks, geese, and pheasants, you know, the amount that I'm contributing to that Pittman-Robertson excise tax is far less than a shooting sports team that's shooting cases and cases a week. Right, you know, right. Which is something I'd never really thought of, but it's, I mean, that's really interesting, and that's, I think that's something that a lot of people could get behind. Yeah, it you know basically what hunters did um, back in the day, and I you know the Pittman Robertson Act passed in 1937, so it's been around a while. Mm-hmm. But basically, the hunters of that time said we want to tax ourselves to help support public access and and wildlife, and you know that was a little bit unheard of in the time because you know if you think back, there were folks that were harvesting. Um, animals for for market, you know, and so there there were large harvests of ducks and geese and deer and buffalo and all these different animals, and there wasn't a lot of money going back into the restoration of wildlife and the preservation and conservation of land. So that was pretty big in the day. That was forward thinking. What they certainly didn't think of at that time was this explosion of youth shooting sports that was coming down the road, you know, in the next century. Basically, I'm like you, Mike. I mean, I I shoot a little bit of trap and sporting clays, but, you know, if I go through a couple flats of ammo a year, it's a, it's a good year. You know, it's a really good year, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or a really bad years. one if you're shooting a lot and missing, like I do sometimes. <laughs> it could be. It could be. <laughs> these kids are shooting flats it almost every other practice, you know, and, and they're buying guns that are in some cases, maybe twice the cost of a hunting shotgun. Long story short is I thought the tax was 11%, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, you're probably I, I, right. I, I'm just drawn from memory. Yeah. I thought it was 11%, but when you think about it, that, that tax is paid up front on that equipment. So when it's made by the manufacturer and it goes out to the retailer, the, the tax is paid. And it's tacked on to the price, and then you know the consumer basically comes up with it at the end. But um, there isn't really another model out there like that, that that funds conservation for everyone. So if you're a bird watcher, or if you like to go jump in a canoe and catch muskies like my buddy Mike, uh, <laughs> there's there's uh, there's something to be said for the guys that are pulling the triggers to help fund that opportunity. Um, yeah. Even trail walkers and parks and those dollars impact the world around you in a big way um, because a lot of those folks that are using those resources aren't necessarily paying a tax to use it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people might not like that, but that's kind of the reality of it. So I, I appreciate hunters and shooters from the standpoint, they make the world around me a much, much better place to visit and enjoy um, because they fund it. So anyway, Pittman-Robertson, no, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's huge. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just think Pittman-Robertson, you know, that whole act is, is huge and it's successful. It's just something so. that I, uh, again, as a sort of growing up as a non-hunter and just being um, – not knowing a whole lot about all this stuff, that that was just a piece of legislation and a factor in all of this that I really was just dumbfounded with when I when I realized that that's how you know public lands are funded and access and and how we yeah it was just amazing that like that that large of a factor of an issue is just people don't know about it. I think the general right. if you go ask if you go ask most people like. Mm-hmm. What one percent of people would know what the Pittman Robertson is, maybe, and it's just, uh, it's, I think yeah. it's just people should talk about it more because it's really important. I think it's important, you know, especially on shows like yours, you know, where you're reaching the masses. Um, you know, that helps fund hunter education programs, it helps 
uh, with archery and shooting ranges. I mean, it does more than just hunting lands. Um, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, every single person should have a chance to take gun safety or hunter education. It, whether or not they use it is, in my estimation, not a concern. Mm-hmm, but if yeah. they need it, if they need it, I want them to have the background to know how to safely handle a gun and be around a firearm. I don't want them to treat it like a cartoon or some of these shoot 'em up movies because that's not that's not good, you right. know. And um, to be able to recognize in others how they're handling firearms, you know. Absolutely. Whether, yeah, so. And if you watch shooting sports, the level of safety is incredibly high. Um, I think the the factor on that is it's safer than jogging. I think jogging has more incidents than than shooting sports, and that's kind of telling of itself. You know, um, some parents are not comfortable around firearms or know that much about them, but um, ironically, they're they're far more safe than a lot of other sports where kids are getting concussions and blowing out knees and breaking ankles and. Yeah. Um, I went to a meeting in Georgia and met with the independent school district and the attorney for the school districts were there. And uh, the number one concern down there at the time was concussions. We have to find sports that have less injuries. And, you know, I followed that, that conversation and said, well, if you want a sport that's safe, um, shooting sports is an opportunity for you to, to look at. Hmm. And they had no idea the safety record that those sports enjoy, you know, so. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, in my experience at least, teaching in a school, and I kind of touched on this before when I was talking about that student that approached me about starting a shooting sports team at the school, and I I admittedly kind of tiptoed around it, like, ooh, I, I don't know, you know, I wasn't sure how I wanted to maybe address that, you know, there is a stigma with like kids and guns and schools and, you know, that we don't really have to travel down that road. I think everybody kind of knows what we're alluding to. Um, but I think it's really important to get that message out there. That's like, these aren't something to be afraid of. There's safe ways that we, you know, everybody's going to know how to handle the firearm safely and operate them safely. Everybody's properly trained. And it actually is a very, very safe, sport and activity and they're i mean and everybody is welcome it's it's like the perfect I, it's the perfect thing for students to get into i i just and i see that it's growing but in, in the school where i taught which was in the city i i don't know if that school was ready for that yet if that makes uh-huh. sense which is a yeah, school no, that prides itself on uh sort of pushing boundaries and and being open to exploration of students desires and, and right i mean right. like they they would be pretty typically pretty open to that stuff there so yeah that's that was something i was curious about when i when we started having this conversation about midway usa foundation and just shooting sports in schools because again i i didn't have much of a reference to that i just i'm curious about how you uh you know how do those how do teams get developed is it from a district wide is it from the top down, I have to imagine, or is it communities that uh, band together of people, there's a large interest? or um, I, yeah, I think there's a variety of angles, guys. I really do. Um, and I think it depends kind of on the state. Uh, you know, in, in Minnesota, with your high school clay target league that you have, um, somebody's already done a lot of the legwork for you, and they've worked with the school athletic association and the, and the schools themselves to make it, you know, an, an athletic sport that they can enjoy. So having that conversation in Minnesota might be slightly different than having that conversation in, say, Oklahoma, you know, where they're not quite there yet. Um, mm. But what I what I see happening a lot is, you know, 4-H has shooting sports programs, and the kids are learning the basics. And, and it's from a young age. And they get a little bit older, and they're like, God, you know, I'm really good at shooting a shotgun you know, or I'm really good at shooting a rifle. Where can I do more of that? Mm-hmm. And they start looking around and it's like, well, gosh, my high school actually has a team, you know, an air rifle team. And they'll get talking to some of the kids that are involved. And, and next thing you know, they're participating. Um, 
it kind of has a natural flow to it. Mm -hmm. Unlike, you know, when I was in school, I know this is crazy and hard to believe, but I got on the bus and with a shotgun, you know, and it was obviously it was in a case, but I went to school. I walked right in the front door of the school with a shotgun and put it in my locker. And half the time, our principal, um, he was awesome. He'd come over and he'd want to see it, you know. So there I am standing in the hallway of the school, and, and the principal's looking at my gun, you know. Um, and I thought that that was the way the world worked. I thought yeah. every school was that way, and yeah. man, was I polar opposite wrong. Um, but if you think back to those days, it was common to see guns in the vehicles on the school property and you know, you never had incidences that were negative. Um, it was more of a cultural thing at the time. It was just ingrained in folks that, you know, I'm going to go shoot after school or I'm going to go hunt or, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of the community kind of thing. And now um, society has shifted. A lot more people are on guard. Um, but these youth shooting sports teams that, you know, the Midway USA Foundation works with, they're extremely disciplined and extremely safe and everybody monitors everybody so there's it's not like you're responsible for just yourself you're responsible for everybody there and i've never seen anything on a range with you shooting sports that has made me feel on edge you know that made me feel like eh, i don't know if i quite like that you know or that makes me uncomfortable they they have rules in place to protect everyone and they enforce those rules and there's not a lot of leeway you know this is the way you're going to do it so do it Um, and, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, it makes them more disciplined and more focused and, you know, as much as people don't think that it translates into the classroom, it does because they're practicing, practicing those things every day and they're focused. And when they go into the classroom and they're taking a test, they have learned how to focus and how to be disciplined and how to study and how to be a you know, a student of their of their sport, and mm-hmm. that makes better community citizens and volunteers. So it all spills over. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. I think you know, pushing extracurriculars just in any fashion is an important thing. You know, and I know that our we have a lot of listeners that are at that kind of high school age demographic, and. Um, my teacher side comes out when I say things like that. It's like, that's what colleges are looking for. And that's how you learn how to study and to manage your time and to be responsible and to be accountable to other people. There's so many valuable lessons there. And if you're learning the skills to hunt and enjoy the outdoors, it's just so many, like it all just snowballs. That shooting sports is, is such a cool thing. And that's why we wanted to have you on, John. I think that sure. there's, there's so many, there's so many ways to, for kids do approach this and I'm, I'm hopeful that they through listening to this will gather you know a few little tidbits of like okay I want to do this and I know how to find those people or that organization or um, that location like that range to go ask people right kind of take that take that first step that first step is going to be the toughest especially for somebody that's got no experience with firearms in general um, but just take that first step. That's the important thing. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be really excited to guide you through that process. Oh, heavens, yeah. that That's absolutely the truth. There's people that want to work with you on it. Um, and ironically, you know, from what I've seen, my experience is that new shooters, the learning curve is so short. Um, they can be successful in a short amount of time if they just put in a little bit of work and listen to their coaches and mentors, you know, listen to their other student athletes that are around them, they'll pick it up quickly because they, they, everyone there wants to be successful and they want you to be successful, which is awesome. It's not a, I don't ever feel like it's a super competitive environment. Um, They're all in it together and they're all enjoying it together and they're all making friends. It's not, um, like your traditional football game where you're trying to run over somebody. You know, that's not the case here. Um, so when they are picking up a sport for the first time, especially something like uh, sporting clays, for instance, 
you know, there's a spot where you shoot and a spot where you don't shoot. And, you know, every station is slightly different. Um, th- that's I'll see kids from opposite teams giving advice to their competitors hmm. to try to help them be successful. And that's awesome. Yeah. That is really cool. And, you know, you were talking about your demographic being a lot of high school kids. Um, they may or may not know, but there are a ton of colleges adding shooting sports programs to their athletic programs. So there's scholarships involved and there's opportunities to go on in life and continue to shoot uh, at a high level and compete with other universities around the country. Um, I never had that opportunity. You know, nothing like that existed, but you're telling me you're going to help give me a scholarship to go to school and I get to shoot clay birds, you know, that what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Let me pinch myself to make sure I'm still, you know, on ground earth here, but yeah. uh, one of the gals I work with at the Midway USA Foundation, um, Sarah Hall, she shot air rifles for Kentucky, um, and she was a scholarship athlete. You know, so those things exist. It's just they're relatively new in the, mm. and I guess in the snippet of time. Um, so if you want to go on, you can certainly go on and compete at that level. But the cool thing about any shooting sports is you can do it the rest of your life. It's not a, a skill like, uh, you know, basketball or wrestling or football or, you know, those are skills yeah. that you have. You're athletically fit and young. They fade, you know, with time. Yep. Shooting sports, a lot of people get better with age, you know. So um, it's something you can take with you for a lot of years. Yep. Yeah, my football days are long over, but. <laughs> got plenty. Of, I got plenty of days left in the woods in the field. And I hope so. That's great. I'd love yeah. to see you keep hunting until you're old and gray, Mike. <laughs> that's right. Well, we uh, um, appreciate you having uh, having this conversation with us and being willing to give us some of your time and <clears throat> shed some light on. I think something that people haven't really heard of and and we think is really cool and really important and and. Uh, worth checking out so um yeah so one of the things that i'm curious about that we didn't really get into but so listening to all this it it excites me as a as an adult and somebody that's kind of itching to be a mentor um how how would i get involved with something like that like i'm thinking donating like if i want to donate money to these endowment funds or if i wanted to find out which organizations or teams need a coach um where could i how can i get involved as an adult sure there's lots of ways you can get involved um basically uh depends on the avenue you're looking at if you're looking at financially supporting a team um personally if i were going to make an investment with my money you know i'd want that money to impact as many youth and shooting sports as I possibly could and I want it to be there forever and that's you know the Midway USA Foundation has team accounts in all 50 states for 3,000 different teams Um, that's a great place to go donate and you can just go on our website which is midwayusafoundation.org you can search for a team in your community or a college team whatever Um, On that page, when it pulls up that team, there's going to be a Donate Now button. And you just click on that, and it's a safe and secure way to donate. We're Charity Navigator, four-star company, so we are very transparent and very secure. Um, And it's tax-deductible. So you can go there and donate for a team. That money is then matched by Larry and Brenda Potterfield, which a lot of people can't even imagine, but... Larry and Brenda put up uh, they put up one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month in matching dollars. Wow. So think about that a second. And oh my gosh, one hundred and fifty grand a month just to match the money that goes into those accounts, which That's is amazing. extraordinary. Um, and so you're you're doubling your money right out of the chute, and you're helping provide that security forever. Um, all of the fees that are associated with any donation, if you're using a credit card. There's fees tied to that from yeah. the you know the provider. Yeah. They pay for all of that. 
Larry and Brenda pay for all the building, all the utilities, all the staff, all the equipment, all the matching, all the fundraising items. I mean, everything that the foundation provides shooting teams as a resource, they cover 100% of it. Um, so if a team wants to do a fundraiser, we even provide free items such as guns or tablets or knife sets, whatever they want to raffle off. We provide those for free to shooting teams so they can go out and run raffles. Wow. It's, it's amazing. Um, amazing. If you want to volunteer for a team or, or a coach, um, you know, it, hopefully you have hunter's ed or gun safety. Hopefully you've got that done. If not, you know, that's really your first step. You need to go mm -hmm. do that. Um, once that's completed, um, reach out and find a local team or a club in your space that, that exists and talk to those folks and let them know that you're interested in helping. I have never seen a facility that is long on volunteers. You know, everybody's yeah. looking for volunteers. That is a limiting factor of, you know, the growth of shooting sports. So we need more coaches. Um, and again, those are the superheroes of the shooting sports world. So if you're a coach, um, you'd be amazed at how, how those kids look up to those coaches. They really um, get inspired by, you know, what they provide. So you both can have a chance to kind of feed off each other's energy. But that is something that um, is relatively simple. And, um, you know, it, it's if you're joining an already established group, they're going to be extremely welcoming because they all know how, how many more coaches are, are needed out there. Mm -hmm. So um, that's an easy transition. If you're starting a new team, what I t traditionally tell um, – folks that are just calling up out of the blue, you know, normally by the time the foundation works with a, with a coach or a shooting sports team, they're already established, you know, by the time they contact us, yeah. they're setting up an endowment account. But once in a while I get calls out of the blue from somebody who just says, Hey, I want to, I want to start a team. How do I do that? Um, and a lot kind of plays into that, you know, what discipline do you want to shoot? Uh, or do you want to coach? Do you want to, you know, if, is it air rifle? Is it, Rimfire action shooting. What are you looking to do? Um, once we kind of hone down through that and I, and I figure out where they're from, um, I'll connect them with one of those entities out there that are experts in that field, and they will help them work with their community, whether it's a school or a club. They'll help them kind of identify the possibilities for that group, and they'll help them get set up. They do it every day, you know. Um, it's kind of humbling to watch how many teams come on board every year and think most of those organizations are a handful of staff and they're starting hundreds of teams across the country that are new, let alone the teams that already exist. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and, and they're represented in a professional way. They carry insurance for them. Um, there's a lot of benefits with the training. They provide the training also to be a coach. Um, and some of the folks that I've worked with in the past have had a chance to learn from coaches that have master's degrees in psychology, sports psychology, which is really unique because now you're learning a skill that has taken someone years to perfect, and you're learning it on a shooting range of all places. You know, um, what a great opportunity to benefit yourself and 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 grow yourself as as well as teaching others. You know. Um, I've right. never been to a range where I didn't learn from other coaches around me. I always learn something. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, there's always opportunity to keep learning, and you've really got me excited about uh, shooting sports. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about you know, how I can get involved and um, kind of preach some of the stuff that you're suggesting here. So uh, again, John, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of what you do at Midway USA Foundation um, and. Yeah, where can, where, I guess, you said, you mentioned the website online. Is there any other resources you want people to check out um, before we leave you today? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I would suggest that if people are interested in shooting sports, do a little research. Just go online and, and you can Google, you know, trap shooting or sporting clays. And a lot of those, those groups that are um, helping folks get started will pop up right away. You know, a lot of those organizations like the, Scholastic Shooting Sports Foundation or 4-H or FFA or USA High School Clay Target League, they, they will pop up and, and just do a little research and find what you're interested in. Find what 
you know, kind of gets you excited and then start reaching out to those folks. And, uh, you know, eventually you're going to come full circle to the Midway USA Foundation. You know, that's what we do. Uh, we help secure the future of shooting sports through wise financial planning and, and making sure that that team has the funds to be there forever. You know, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, we're blessed to be in that space and, and we, we're the only ones that do it. Um, we're the only ones that work in all 50 states with all disciplines. And, uh, you know, our goal is just to get as many folks out shooting as possible so they can experience all the, the fun, you know, with their friends. So, um, we're, we're happy to be that resource and, I'm glad to be able to work for a company that's given back like that. It's really great. Yeah, and we're happy there's people like you with such a passion and and uh, kind of a, I mean, your energy is pretty infectious. I, I mean, I can kind of feel like, <laughs> I can feel that I like, I'm, I want to get more involved, as Jake said. So it's you're the perfect person for this position, and, uh, and uh, we're really appreciative to have you come on the podcast and hopefully we can have you back again some other time just to talk bird hunting. I mean, living, yeah, in, the, great. living in Northwest Iowa, I mean, you're kind of in the Mecca <laughs> of it. And, uh, yeah, we have a few birds left and yeah. Yeah, we're in good shape. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, um, once again, John, thanks again. And I appreciate your friendship and, uh, what you do for, um, for the outdoor community and, and for the youth. And, um, yeah, we look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, I'd love to help you anytime, guys. I appreciate you uh, letting us talk about the foundation so folks can kind of learn who we are a little bit. Most people don't even know we exist, so it's it's good to spread the word. Very good, John. Well, we'll take care, and uh, maybe we'll see you at an event someday or uh, talk to you again. That sounds great, guys. All right. Thank you. Take care, John. Thanks, John. You bet.